Once again, I want to uh, thank you for having me. It is a privilege to come and to open up the Word of God for you. I want to thank the session particularly for that uh, invitation to come and do so. I originally uh, started down the track of doing two sermons back to back this week, next week, one on the birth of Christ this week, next week on the presentation of Christ in the temple. When uh, Vince called me and asked that I do the baptism, I kind of shifted gears a bit and I decided to focus on uh, covenantal relationships. Um, Not that I've forgotten all about the other, but we'll try to cram that in all at once next week. And I'm sure you'll enjoy it because it only should last about three hours. Of course, I'm kidding. You hope. (laughs) I want to, uh, again, pick up the reading of God's word. And I want to pick it up at verse 18 of Luke 1. So if you have your uh, inserts with you or your Bibles, please open to Luke 1, verse 18. Hear now the word of the living God. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent Unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in your time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering in this delay, at this delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was, was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision. And they kept For he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to the city of from God to the city of Galilee near Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. May God bless the reading of his word. If I had read the entire passages that are provided for you in the, in the bulletin, you would see a number of things. And the reason uh, I want to focus on this passage, these passages still, in light of covenant relationships, is just this. Everything in the Old Testament is driving to this point. And everything in the New Testament is coming out of this point. God had promised of old to save his people. Back in the garden, when Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, God had promised 
that there would be a seed of the woman. And that there would be in this seed of the woman the defeat of Satan and his works. That the seed of this woman would come to destroy the devil and his works. That the seed of the woman would come to restore man to the fullest possible relationship with God. And now, thousands of years later, angels are proclaiming the birth of that Savior. Those promises made by God to his ancient people, to our first parents, Adam and Eve, is now coming to fulfillment and fruition. One of the things we learn from all of the scripture is this. That our God is by nature and character a covenantal God. He deals with us in covenant. To Adam and Eve, when he created the world, he entered into a covenant with them that they would work, fill the earth, subdue the earth, master and enjoy the earth. And that he would be their God and he would be, they would be his people. In rebellion and sin, they turned away from him. And God came again to them and renewed that covenant, promising a Savior to deliver them and to restore them. And as time went on, so God appeared at various times in various places to men he called unto himself and entered into covenant with them. So it was with Noah. So it was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it was with David. And now we have David's greater son coming. Here we have the focal point of God's work on earth. And we see in this the covenant relationships that we reflect. And that we also make up our lives. We reflect his covenantal nature back to him. We reflect his character, his covenantal character back to him. God commands us to reflect his character back to him. Be ye holy, he says, as I am holy. We reflect back to God what God produces in us that makes us, as it were, chips off the old block. By nature, we are full of sin by nature, we are full of depravity. By nature, we are full of disobedience. But through the working of Christ, through his Holy Spirit, we are given fundamentally new natures. Natures that are oriented to God. Natures that are looking to Christ. Not natures that are looking back at sin and death and disobedience but rather natures that look forward to the new humanity that is being raised up in Jesus Christ. Men and women from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue is drawn together into this new humanity in Christ. In Christ, there's neither Greek nor barbarian. There's neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. This is the... This is the very purpose of Christ coming into the world. 
We read in Ephesians how there's this dividing wall, there's this division. We count that division in oh so many ways. We base it on wealth. We base it on education. We base it on skin color. We base it on tribal affiliation, national affiliation. But in Christ, there is none of that. Or in Christ, if there is that, it is a sin. For in Christ, we are one new family in God. God instituted our families. What do we call a marriage when it's entered into? We call it a covenant of marriage. Why is that particular institution of all the things we're involved in called a covenant? What does Paul say about marriage? What does marriage picture? What is marriage like? I speak to you of a mystery, he says. I speak of Christ and his church. Why does God use that imagery to reflect the relationship of God's people to himself through Christ? The imagery of marriage. One is the permanence of marriage. I know that in society today, we look at marriages as disposable covenants. We treat it little more than a temporary contract that can be easily discarded. Just go before a judge and discard the contract. God does not speak of it that way. God speaks of marriage picturing the relationship between Christ and his church. Can you conceive? Can you conceive in your mind that Christ would break that covenant? That he would turn his back on it? God speaks of turning his back on Israel. God speaks of putting Israel under chastising judgment but always with one thing in mind, to draw Israel back to himself. God deals with us in this covenantal way. And our relationships in life are to reflect that covenantal nature of God. We see that in our marriages with its mutual submission of love to one another. Our love is to be characterized as Christ loved the church. I would ask, except I would not want to embarrass any man here. If you love your wife as Christ loved the church, no man can raise his hand to that one. I hope all of you who are men would say and raise your hand if I would say, who strives to love his wife as Christ loved the church? I know you fail. I know I fail. I know every man has failed. All men fail, save Christ. And thanks to God that his, our failings are covered by his obedience and his righteousness. But God has given us that desire, that orientation as his sons and as his daughters, to fulfill the covenant that he has established and we have entered into. All our relationships of life are derived from our relationship with God. 
That's what's pictured in baptism. We have a covenantal relationship. If you listen to all those vows, the parents take vows regarding their children. They undertake to do for their children certain things. To treasure the child as a gift of God entrusted to their care. I used to tell my children that I was not their, uh, I was not their first father. That I was their second best father. That their first father, their best father, was in heaven. And you know what? I was fine getting second place. It made me happy. It delighted me that my children took God and claimed God as their own and made him their father. God has no grandchildren. My grandchildren have a grandfather. God is not it. In God's good time, in God's good grace, I pray my grandchildren will come to displace their father with the father in heaven. I will not be able to be displaced. Grandfathers remain grandfathers. That's one of the good things about that. But there is a covenantal relationship there that is derived from our covenantal relationship with God. God has entered into covenant to be our God and for for us to be his people. And he works all things to that end. He has moved heaven and earth to accomplish this purpose. He has wrought miracles upon miracles upon miracles to accomplish this purpose. I could go back and start reciting the miracles of the Bible back as far as you want to go. Even up to this very moment. We see that covenant relationship. You may not catch it the first time you read it. But you see that covenantal drama being played out. Zechariah is a priest. And as a priest, he's chosen according to his lot to go into and be a part of the worship of God in the temple of God. There to offer at the altar of incense. Incense at the hour of prayer. Do you find that interesting? That he's in there offering incense while the people of God are outside praying? What is that incense? What does it typify? What does it symbolize? If we jump over into the vision that John has of the temple in heaven, we read how the the priests pour out bowls of incense. And as Revelation says, which are the prayers of the saints. Incense in the Old Testament worship of God typified the prayers of God's people. Incense was offered. The incense rose up before God in his throne room, which was what the temple was. Incense rose up before God in the temple. The prayers of God were rising up to God that he might hear them, that he would respond to them according to his will to accomplish his purposes. 
And during this time, what is it that the angel says to, to Zechariah? Fear not. Your prayer has been heard. Now, we can dis- debate a lot of things here. What prayer? Was Zechariah, as a priest, you think, praying that he would have a child? There's, is there anything in the text that you read here in his exchange, his response, that, you, that, that, that causes you to think that he's praying for a child? When Gabriel announces that he's going to have a child, he says, what? I'm an old man. And he's not doing stand-up comedy. My wife is an old woman. Dangerous thing to say. But nonetheless, he said it. He did not expect that the prayer he was talking about was himself and his own child. That who's out, who's out, who else is there at this moment? It's the people gathered outside at the hour of prayer. What is the, what is the prayer of God's people? Oh God, fulfill your covenant. Send your Messiah. Save us your people. Make us your own. Accomplish the promises you have made. That is the prayer of God's people. In every age, in every time, in every place. Even now we pray, God fulfill your promises. Come, come quickly Lord Jesus. Bring to us the new heavens. Bring to us the new earth. Reveal to us the fullness of the sons of God. Which we are. Let all creation know that you are our God and that we are your people. That's the prayer of God's people. That's the prayer of God's people outside in the courtyard. That's the prayer of Zechariah the priest. In Old Testament, who does the priest represent? Who does the prophet represent? The prophet represents God's word coming to his people. They approach the people with the holy word of the living God. The priest, he represents sinful men responding to that word of the holy God in their approach to God. Zechariah is representing the people in their prayers, offering up the incense which is to typify their prayers, that their prayers would come up before God. And the angel Gabriel says, your prayer has been heard. You're going to have a son as a bonus. Though you are an old man and you are married to an old woman, you're going to pay off the gynecologist with a social security check or its equivalent you are going to have a son it's going to be the work of God in your old age you're going to be blessed and this son is going to be special this son is going to be Elijah returned this son will be the one who will turn hearts of fathers to their children Is it not a sad truth that fathers turn away from their children? They abandon their children. I can say that. 
My father, I'm told, took a look at me and three, years old, three days old and left. When I, in 1988, my sister had some medical need, and so I tracked down my father to find out what medical history we could provide. He was abrupt. He says, I'll answer your questions. I answered, I asked my questions. He said, don't ever call again. Fathers abandon their children. And children become just as hostile to their fathers. But in the gospel, that changes. Does it not? In the gospel, we are transformed. We who had enmity with our parents, God works in us that that enmity dissipates and that enmity hopefully, prayerfully, will turn to forgiveness and reconciliation. And likewise with parents, it will be a gospel change, not a a peace at any cost type of reconciliation. I will accept you in all your sin. I'll accept you in all your wickedness. Not that kind of a thing. But a gospel reconciliation where hearts are transformed and souls are made new in Jesus. That is the covenantal change that characterizes the relationship of God's people between fathers and sons, between husbands and wives, between church members and church members. That is the gospel change that takes place in in the lives of repentant people. That covenant reflects and responds to God's covenant with us. If I were to read on with Zechariah and Elizabeth, he goes home and you know, I, I laugh at this. It's, to me, it's like a stand-up comedy moment. I'd love to see someone do a skit like this. Can you imagine Zechariah when he gets home? Elizabeth says, hey, you've been gone for quite a while. How's things going? Silent treatment. How long would that last before someone says, aren't you talking to me? But eventually he would communicate to her what had happened. And he says, hey, honey, I got news for you. You're going to have a baby. I'd like to know how that one went over. You're going to have a child. We're going to have a son. She might have said, what did, how much of an incense did you inhale? I don't know. But she had a child. And then who comes to visit her but her mother? But her, her cousin, Mary. And here's something for you. Who is the first person to praise Christ in his incarnation? It's the womb. <laughs> oh, that's just to me is so funny. You want a pro-life argument? Here it is. John the Baptist is praising the creator of the universe. Mary doesn't get it yet. Elizabeth doesn't know it. John doesn't know it. There's a whole host of people who don't know it yet. But John the Baptist in the womb, the Holy Spirit is with him. He is a prophet. He's praising Christ. He's acknowledging the working of God that's now taking place. When Jesus is later presented in the temple, Simeon, a prophet, he comes and says, Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. 
For I have seen the Lord's salvation. What did he see? He saw a baby, Jesus. And he knew enough to know that in this child rested his salvation and redemption. That this child embodied, incarnated the covenant fulfillment of God's promises. That's why I say this passage is the focal point of all that God has promised and all that God has been doing in the history from the creation of the world up to this very moment. And everything that God does from this moment on in history is rooted in this act of incarnation and the coming of his son. We reflect God's nature and his covenantal nature. We reflect God's covenantal character because we are created in our covenant God's image. When we are an inventive sort of a person, and I, you know, it, some of you are, some of you aren't. Some of you see a, see a toy and you can't wait to take it apart. And some of you can't put it back together, but some of you can. You're called engineers. It drives you nuts when you have one piece left over and you don't know where it went. That is something of God's ingenuity. That is something of God's creativeness. Some of you paint and sculpt, not me. Not my thing. But that painting, that creativity, that is God's creativeness shown in you that carries over as part of that covenant stamped image on us. He's a creator. We are creating. Think of all the creativeness of man throughout the history of the world. All the things I've seen in my lifetime I cannot begin to understand some of the things my grandchildren will see in their lifetime. How rich it might be should Christ tarry. Our creative relationship is seen in the church. One of the questions we ask, do you, members, you're members one of another. You have covenanted before God to be members of this church. And there are specific vows I don't have them here before me. I could have asked them to print those out for me before the service as well. But you covenanted and you promised certain things. To pray for the work of the church. To be a part of the work of the church. To encourage others in the work of the church. To give to the support of the church. To respect the church's authority. To respect the church's discipline. I'm not saying that's always easy. That's not. For one who has ever been a, tar- a, a, a legitimate target of church discipline, it takes grace to receive it. But the yoke of Christ is easier than rebellion. And I would say to any who would ever face that, face it with courage Centered and rooted in Christ. Because as Christ disciplines, so does he restore. I say that knowing in my own life those very things. 
There is that covenantal relationship we have with the church. We promise, as it were, to be the churches and the church to be ours. We promise to be a part of one another's lives and to let them be a part of our lives. To bear one another's burdens. To pray for one another. To support one another. To encourage one another. To come alongside one another. For we are members of the same body. And just as this hand cannot say, I don't want this hand. And this finger cannot say, I don't want that toe. And this ear says, I have nothing to do with you down there on the feet. Can't work that way. For we are all members of Christ, and in Christ we are one. We see that covenantal nature in our church membership, in our families. We see it. We bring our children to the church for baptism, to unite them to the fellowship of the church. That here they might be prayed for, here they might be receive help and instruction, that here they might be... Uh, encouraged in the Christian life and to pursue the Christian life in all kinds of ways. Sunday school teachers teaching, elders praying, elders counseling, elders coming and alongside and visiting and encouraging. When you go to conferences, you know, encouraging conference attendance, all those things. Some of you went up to Franklin. I understand that was, that's up by us. The young people, I hope you had a good time. But more importantly, I hope you caught the spiritual lessons that were being taught. That is the desire of the congregation of God's people. There is that covenantal relationship that takes place there. There's a covenantal relationship that takes place in all our relationships as God's children. As we look to our God, what do we see? We see that His covenant is rooted in His attributes of holiness and righteousness. It is for His name's sake that He saves us. He leads us in a path of righteousness for His name's sake. He stamps his name on us. And then he wrestles in us to bring us to a holiness and to a righteousness. That we might cast aside the sins that so easily entangle us. And give us strength to run with endurance that race that is before us. It is rooted in his Attributes of holiness and righteousness. It is also rooted in his almighty power. What is it we declare? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of all things in heaven and on earth, in all things seen and unseen. Why do we believe in a God, the Father Almighty? We say that knowing that we may trust that God to do all that he has promised, all that he has covenanted to do, because he is almighty and able to do it. No one can stay his hand. No one can stop him from accomplishing his purpose. 
He will reign and he will accomplish that which he has promised. But we could also pray to him for his goodness to be given to us, knowing that he will hear us, knowing that he will hear us because he has covenanted to be our father. Even our earthly fathers know how to give good gifts. And what does Jesus say in comparing God to that? Your heavenly father. If your earthly fathers can give good gifts, how about your heavenly father? If your earthly father will hear you, how about your heavenly father? He hears. He is willing to hear. And because of his love set on us in Christ Jesus, he hears us for good. We are made like our God. And like our God, we reflect that covenantal character that he possesses. And it is to be seen in all of our relationships of life. We do not bring our children lightly to the house of God for baptism. We bring our children with fear and trembling. We do not come as a congregation and stand and take vows of care for children lightly. But in the fear of God, knowing that God will give us grace to do those very things we promise. We do not enter into the covenant of church memberships lightly. But in the fear of our God. Knowing that God again will give us grace. To be obedient. And likewise our covenant of marriage. Our covenant in our families. All of our covenant relationships. We do not enter into them lightly. But we enter into them in the fear of God, knowing that our God will give us grace to live in them in righteousness. All that God has done in the history of his people brings us to this moment, the birth of Christ. And all that he has done since He does from this moment onward because of the incarnation of Christ. Let us pray.